following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Our call to worship this morning is Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted your name and your word above everything. On the day I called, you answered me. You increased my strength of soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. They shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he perceives from far away. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve me against the wrath of my enemies. You stretch out your hand, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And our second reading today comes from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 10. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the king displeased Samuel when they but the thing displeased Samuel when they said give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day Forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall rule over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. We're starting a new series called um, Embrace the Ordinary. Now, um, we like to follow the Christian calendar here at Artisan. And we're in a season of the Christian calendar right now called Ordinary Time. It's just a long stretch where there's no um, high holy days, no feast days, um, nothing fancy happening, right? And it goes all the way until we get to Advent. And then we'll be in Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and um, Lent and Easter and Pentecost. All that stuff, will, it all kind of bunches up in that other half of the year. But for, for now and for the foreseeable well, for, for, for several months anyway. We're in ordinary time. And the lectionary, which is our collection of scripture readings assigned to the dates of the year, um, it just kind of takes us through stuff in the Bible. And there, there aren't usually like, uh, the, the themes don't arise quite as um, high and clear as they do during the, the feast and holiday seasons of the church year. But um, we believe that God meets us not just in those special high holy days, but in every moment of ordinary life. And so we want to embrace the ordinary and look for God's presence and uh, make our own effort to be in God's presence in the scripture texts and in, in all of our life, even though there's not those, those big reminders of our 
or religious tradition that come up, like Christmas and Easter and, and all of that. Um, and so a big part of that, and this also will build on the, the themes that we've just been through in our Open Doors series, a big part of that, I hope, will be a chance to hear from each other and um, to listen to each other's experience of faith and to each other's reading of the scriptures. And so I'm going to try to make space for that in the sermon blocks, uh, at least throughout the summer, and uh, see where that can carry us. Because I, I, um, there's never been a time when I've invited response or kind of on-the-fly interpretation from the community, and I haven't been like, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way. And it's so wonderful to be able to be um, kind of uh, blessed by other people's experiences and that kind of thing. So... Let's start with the first Samuel text that uh, Jesse read a minute ago. This is actually a major moment in the history of God's people. And if you've taken our Journey Together membership class, where I, um, I, I really quickly take us through the moment of creation, through all of known uh, human history, and um, up to the present day in like just a couple uh, hours, really, you might remember that we talk about 1 Samuel 8 as a pivotal moment in the history of God's people, because God's people started with the call of Abraham, and they migrated into Egypt, and were then enslaved in Egypt, and then were carried out of Egypt, or led out of Egypt by Moses, and the story of the uh, wandering in the wilderness, and then the people settle in the promised land, and they begin to be governed They set up a semi-permanent structure as a society. And they're being governed at first by a series of judges. And then eventually the people are looking around them and seeing these nation states emerge that have kings instead of judges. And the people say, we want to be like our neighbors. So give us a king. And Samuel is reluctant and prays to God. And God says, I know, but don't worry. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Just make sure you tell them what they're in for. And then the passage goes on. We didn't read the whole passage today, but the passage goes on. And uh, Samuel tells the people in quite some detail what it means to have a king. If you have a king, the king's going to want to conscript your children into the Uh, service in the kingdom, including military service. The king's going to take a very hefty portion of your income and use it to make things look all fancy and blinged out. The king's going to do all these things that you're not going to like. So if that's what you want, we'll do it. But get ready, because you might not like it as much as you think you're going to like it. And being like our neighbors is not always always all it's cracked up to be. So now, let me turn it to you for a minute. We we do want to try to apply these ancient texts to our own lives in, in the present day. And so let me ask you this. And um, Zoom people, uh, I have my laptop here, but my camera's over there, so that's very confusing to me. But Zoom people, if you have a response to what I'm about to ask, you can type it into the chat, and I will read it out in the room, and everybody will get to hear it. If you're in the room with us, you can just um, either shout something out, or if, you, if you're a really a good little boy or girl, you can... You know, if you insist on raising your hand, you can, but it's not required. <laughs> I was definitely a raise-my-hand type of kid. I didn't shout out anything ever. But, all right, <clears throat> here's the question, though, that I have for you. As we think about trying to apply 1 Samuel 8 to our modern lives, what is something, one piece that is different between the culture then and the culture now? Or what's something that's actually the same between the culture then and the culture now? Because those are how we're going to try to think through and un- unpack this and take it apart. Ah, yeah, 
Thank you, Cameron. They said, um, there are very few of us on top, and the rest of us are on the bottom. That's a similarity between ancient culture, 1 Samuel 8 time, and today. Yes, thank you. What else? Fear-based responses. Fear-based responses. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm, I'm debating whether to ask you if you want to say more about that. I'll say it. Do you... <laughs> well, yeah, basically, it's like, you know, we are afraid. Uh, if we don't do this, then mm. is a fear based response. If I, I'm afraid that I don't do this, then this is going to happen. Yeah. That has been preyed upon yeah. by, by, by many in the aforementioned pyramid scheme. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Penny. So um, she said that um, people are making, we're making decisions that still do today based in fear, saying if I don't do this thing, then something bad will happen to me. And then the, I think w what was even more astute, if I could say, was that that gets preyed upon by people in power. Yeah, thank you. A couple from Zoom here. Um, Ava says one thing that's the same is people don't actually know what they want. <laughs> wow. Eileen says taxes. I'm going to assume that's also the same as opposed to a difference, <laughs> having just paid some myself. Um, David says we tend to want or envy what others have. Jolene says something that's different is monarchy versus democracy. Interesting, yeah. So uh, let me dwell on that for just a second because it's a very common move um, when interpreting these ancient scriptures from the Hebrew Bible especially to say, well, this is what was going on then. Um, you know, God's chosen people or the nation does this or that and so on and so forth. And then to apply that to usually to America today, right? And I, I think that's a pretty careless interpretive move, actually, to, to assume that all of those um, societal, especially governmental things, are like necessarily going to have a one-to-one -one application for us today. So, thank you. Um, the cuttings, uh, somebody in their family says, people across the political spectrum want their, quote, king in power. Mm. Yeah, Jesse. Interesting. So Jesse um, mentioned that in uh, the confirmation class for the Episcopal Church, they're talking about how the church has always borrowed from culture. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if the people on Zoom can hear you, so I'm going to try to repeat it back, um, that uh, the Catholic Church borrowed from Rome with the diocese, the Anglican Church borrowed from culture, the Episcopal Church is kind of trying to apply the American experiment to that. And um, I could add to that easily the fact that a lot of our holidays are basically reappropriations of, of, you know, pagan traditions and so forth. And the important point that I'm hearing from you is that, yes, that's bad sometimes, but it's not always bad. You know, um, applying culture into our way um, is 
possibly just a neutral thing. It could be good, could be bad, could be bad. Yeah, yeah. Autumn points out the the idea of wanting to align with power is the thing that that prompts God to say, "This is a rejection of me." And um, so, are you seeing that as a similarity or a difference with today? A similarity, yes. Okay, I thought so. But yeah, and that's that's one of those things that can transcend monarchy and democracy. That difference, you know, um, certainly there are people in the religious tradition trying to align themselves with political power, and that gets leveraged, as Penny pointed out. Yeah, Jana. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, Gianna's pointing out conscription is is a similarity that that's still a, still a thing today. Um, pointing out that young men at age of eighteen have to register um, with the selective service. Is that what it's called for the draft? Yeah, that was a scary moment for me. I remember nothing ever came of it. Thank you, thankfully, but any. Mm. One difference is an ease of living. Yeah, interesting. So it might be that um, that people wanting to have their society ordered in a certain way has something to do with how difficult or easy they are finding their life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to hear from you again in just a couple of minutes. Um, but before I move on, anything else that you're seeing as a similarity or a difference from that time to this? So let me add one piece of context for you that, that comes from um, the, uh, the text, the part that we didn't, didn't read. It's actually from the first few verses of that chapter. So before the elders of Israel gather together and come to Samuel and tell them, um, appoint for us a king, this is, what, this is the, the detail that comes before that. When Samuel became old... He made his sons judges over Israel. So he had been the judge, and he made his sons the judges. Uh, The name of his firstborn son was Joel, uh, which proves that anybody named Joel is a problem. The name of his... (laughs) Hi, Joel. (laughs) Welcome back. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not follow in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And that's the thing that led the people of Israel, the elders, to come together and say to Samuel, uh, you're old and your sons don't follow in your ways, so appoint us a king to govern us like other nations. So that little bit of info, to me, I don't know if this is true for you, but to me, that, that really connects the family dynamic to this story in a in a different way. I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. The gospel reading that the lectionary gives us today is from Mark chapter 3. And once again, I'm not going to read the whole passage that the lectionary gives us, um, but you could be reading the lectionary passages on your own if you'd like to. And I often suggest this to people who come to me and say, I kind of want to read the Bible, but I don't know where to start. Should I just like open it to page one and start? 
And my answer to that is almost always no. That's almost always a bad idea. Um, because you won't get very many pages in before you will give up, unless you are made of much stronger stuff than I am. Um, but the lectionary offers you like a little kind of dip in here, dip in there, different parts of the Bible, and the nice thing is it connects you to what we're going to be reading in, in, in worship and talking about in the sermons together. So I encourage you to read that. You could find it with Google very quickly if you don't know where to find it. And if you have trouble, just reach out to me and I would be happy to share the link with you. But here's the four verses from the gospel reading that I want to give you today. Mark 3, 31 through 35. Um, then his, meaning Jesus' mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside, asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So my question for you about this text, this one might be um, just for the, the, uh, my fellow church nerds. <laughs> in the, if you didn't grow up in the church, you may not have an answer to this, and that's okay. But if you have been in church long enough to hear this passage taught, I'm curious to hear, how has this passage been taught? This is a question that my friend Don uses when he teaches in his community a lot, and I'm, I'm borrowing it from him. How have you heard that passage taught, especially that last part about whoever, you know, who are my mother and my brothers, and looking around saying, anybody got an answer to that one? Once again, Zoom people, if you want to type something in, you're invited to do that. Yes. Elliot says, has heard it taught that your church family is more important than your biological family. And that's especially true if your biological family are not churchgoers. Yeah. I, I think I saw a couple people giving the nod on that. Other people, have you heard that that way? Yeah. Avila says that she's heard this, teach, heard this taught to, to be that you should treat other Christians especially well. Right, and respect them more, more than other people, more than non-Christians, perhaps. Yeah. Any other ways you've heard this taught? Yeah. Yes. 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 Scott says he's heard it. That um, that last bit is the most important part, that whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother, and that the important thing is that you do the will of God, and, and jokingly sort of says, like, so that's pretty simple, right? Did I capture that pretty well? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting to me that, the, that you honed down that part, right? Because the will of God, um, people seem sometimes pretty eager to help you understand what that is, don't they? <laughs> right? It's much like, uh, you know, sexual immorality, which is a word that's a phrase that's in the English translations of our Bible a lot. That um, that tends to mean whatever 
somebody who's in charge wants it to mean. Yeah, right? Um, Eileen says on Zoom, it's okay to go against your family's wishes to do what you think God wants. Really interesting. Yeah. I definitely, definitely got that one when I was growing up. I mean, as long as I didn't actually do it. <laughs> right. Interesting. Does anybody find this, this teaching of Jesus a little bit hard to hear? I do. I find it a little bit hard to hear. Um, uh, not hard to understand. No, I mean sort of like difficult and painful to hear in a little bit, uh, in, in some way. So the idea that Jesus is basically saying, um, you know, so my biological mother and brother and sisters maybe are out there. Um, I, it doesn't matter to me. It's what it, it's sort of how I feel it coming across. Does anybody else get that sense? Like, yeah, forget about them. I'm I'm here with you. You're the ones who matter to me. That doesn't doesn't quite seem too easy to apply. It's sort of a heavy. Heavy teaching, um, and believe it or not, the, the part of the passage that comes before this, some of it that I cut out, is even harder to, to hear and understand and accept. Um, maybe even a little bit heavier. But let me do this. Let me try to connect these two texts together: the First Samuel eight and the Mark three, and let's see if it helps make any any sense of this. The first thing is that both of them have some pretty heavy implications about family. Right? I mentioned Samuel had appointed his sons as judges. Like, um, this is both religious and political nepotism, <laughs> perhaps. Right? And in that case, the sons have done wrong against the whole community. And the people start to complain about it and ask for a whole new way of governance. And, oh, by the way, it's not going to be with your family, Samuel. Right? You might imagine that if we were going to convert our, our national government from a system of judges to a system of kings, that the natural thing to do would be to, to just slide who's ever in the judge position over into the throne and make them the king. And then, of course, that's good news because you know, monarchy is, by definition, um, dynastic. right? So his sons are going to be set up really well in that case, um, which maybe is what God is getting at when God says... They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, right? And so Samuel's seeing this perhaps as a rejection of his family. And even if he's not seeing it that way, surely he's noticing that his children are messing things up. And as a parent, we are really proud of our kids and want them to do well, and we're proud of them when they do well, and if if they were doing something that was really messing things up for everybody, it might be hard for us to accept that and admit that and see that. So there's already this weird family dynamic there. In the case of Jesus, we see him seeming to reject his own family, his mother and his brothers, and in favor of the people who he's teaching and engaging with. And I think, the, for me, the way that I connect these two stories together is to remember that the context in both is a societal system where the lines between family and country and religious belief and practice are very faint, right? We um, theoretically have a separation of church and state in America, right? And we are very ruggedly individualistic, so even, even within our family systems, we often um, try to strike out on our own. That's all very natural for us. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, particularly in the Jewish culture among these Israelites, 
all of those lines were kind of blurred together because the people were all one tribe, right? Um, the, the people of Abraham, they've all descended from this patriarch. And their identity within that tribe comes from being the sons and daughters of Abraham. They were a nation state, but kind of just barely, right? They had just settled in the promised land and started to organize themselves together. And even there, the way that they were organized was within the context of that family. They were very religious people. Their religious practice united them together and created, for some, in some ways, a boundary for them that helped them understand that they were part of this, this community and other people were part of other communities. But once again, even their religious identity is bound up in their familial identity as descendants of this common um, patriarch. And so when Samuel hears the people's desire to be more like other nations, more like the other tribes, it probably was hard for him to separate his position as the head of a family from his position as the head of God's family because all those lines were blurred. And to the extent that he felt his own family being attacked, which I think reading between the lines is probably true, um, <clears throat> that, that was very hard for him to receive as, as separate from, um, from what's happening uh, politically in his, in his culture. And when Jesus says that alarming thing uh, about where he seems to reject his own family, um, it probably sounded to his audience not just like a son or a brother putting some distance between himself and his family. That's how we might read it today. As a, you know, a child in a family might decide to separate from them and be that rugged individual. right? But to the hearers of what Jesus is saying, they're also receiving this as a religious teacher, diminishing the familial relationship that is the very thing that connects him to his religious tradition in the first place. Does that make sense? Because it's, it's this descendant, uh, this, this, um, this ancestry that makes him Jewish in the first place. And so for him to reject his mother, that's the definition of a Jew, is, the, is someone who's born to a Jewish mother. And so those lines are blurred in both of the stories. And so as we begin to think about how to apply ancient stories to our own lives today, it occurs to me that we may want to think uh, about how we understand our own identity as a people um, and how God might be calling us into something different. Because since we are in a very different place in all of those ways, culturally, politically, and in the way families tend to be structured nowadays as compared to then, it's, it's not going to be quite enough probably just to, to try to make some direct linear connection. The spoiler alert for the Bible is that that's almost never <laughs> quite enough, as, as, as much as that would be much, uh, a significantly easier way to live our lives as religious people. It requires more work than that, almost always. But I think especially today, looking at these stories with so much family implication, it's really hard for us. At any rate, one thing that I think is similar is that it's quite possible that God is calling us into an uncomfortable expansion and possibly even sometimes into uncom uncomfortable separations in order to continue to move onward and upward further into the 
the creation of a loving and just community, which is what I believe God is setting out to do in our world all the time, and the work that we are um, given the privilege of joining God in doing ourselves. And in some ways, um, this sounds like, because it is, just a continuation of everything we've been talking about for the past two months in the Open Door story. That Listen, these boundaries that we have been so uh, comfortable with and which we have just assumed as part of who we are, those boundaries don't actually need to exist. And in fact, when they do exist, they create barriers for people that we want to remove. The doors are opening wider to God's kingdom and and, um, to the feast table in in God's dining room, if you will allow that. Um, And you can choose to embrace that, or you can choose to fight it, but one thing you're not going to do is stop it. So, I don't think that this is necessarily going to look like rejecting your own family in, in order to you know, in, in favor of practicing Christianity. And reading between the lines of what some of you said, I think that you've gotten that message. I certainly got that message, kind of just absorbed it into, from the evangelical subculture in which I was raised. But here's what I want to say about that. That teaching strikes me now as, um, at best, a persecution complex. In other words, if you are truly following Jesus, people are going to hate you, even your family, Right? And at worst, um, that can really become a a lever for manipulation. And I know that some of you might have experienced that as well. This idea that the the people inside this room, right, or inside this Zoom, these are the real real family. These are the people you really need to rely on. And whatever's happening in your home life, um, you know, honor your father and mother. But really, it's about the church. That becomes manipulation very quickly if you don't, uh, if you don't take some care uh, to guard against it. So it doesn't need to look like rejecting your family <laughs> in favor of the church. In fact, though, I believe sometimes, um, I, I know that some of you have had the, the, maybe what you would call the opposite experience where your religious community has proven to be harmful to your family and you've had to prioritize your child or your parent or your spouse. In any case, I do believe that we are sometimes going to be challenged to stretch ourselves beyond the familiar and familial, to stretch ourselves beyond the comfortable relationships that have always brought us stability. And those relationships could be inside the church or outside the church, inside the family or outside the family. But we are going to be challenged to stretch ourselves in order to receive the fullness of God's goodness for ourselves and for the world. And so let me leave you with just one verse from the epistle reading today. The lectionary always gives us something from the letters of the New Testament. And I'm not going to read the whole passage, just one verse. Because I think this gives us the picture of what's happening in God's story. This is 2 Corinthians 4.15. It says, yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So our prayer for for us today is may God's grace extend to more and more people. 
And may we have the privilege of seeing it, the wisdom not to obstruct it, the courage boldly to go out into that world so that we can be part of it, that we can join in God's work of loving the whole world. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.